Did anybody bring a Bible tonight? Hope you're ready to use it. Thank God. It's interesting how the, <laughs> it's interesting how the, the seating shifts every week, and uh, you never, never know where everybody's going to be. That's cool. I'm glad you're not addicted to any one seating plan. <laughs> yeah, I know. Hey. Let's open our Bibles right back to the book of Acts. For those of you that are just joining us for the first time tonight, we want to welcome you and uh, also want to let you know that we've been going through the book of Acts, and it's been awesome. Um, Really exciting to read. Uh, You know, you get a lot of, the New Testament is full of teaching, and, and, and from that teaching, we, we could develop theories on, well, what does he mean by this, and what does this look like in reality? What I love about the book of Acts is a lot of the things that are taught in other places, we see firsthand in the book of Acts. We see them taking place. We don't see everything, but we see a lot. As we've said so many times already in these last few weeks, it's so easy for us to call the early church the early church and separate it almost as a different season in time. And it was a different season, but it was the same Holy Spirit. It was the same new covenant. It was the same Jesus, and it's the same church. The early church is still the church, and we're the church too. So when you read this, I want you to get excited about what God not only could do, but does do. I want you to see that these were ordinary people. The book of Acts does not just talk, you know, it, it, is, it is officially, I think, called the Acts of the Apostles, but we understand that in it, there's more than just the apostles that we read about. We read about ordinary folk too. I mean, the, the apostles themselves were ordinary when God got a hold of them. They were ordinary except for the fact that they'd been filled with the Spirit, just like we're filled with the Spirit. But you see uh, guys like Philip. Now, I'm not talking about Philip, one of the original 12, but I'm talking about Philip the Greek, the uh, deacon that was called up. You see guys like him going to Samaria with no training, no real official sending out. The guys just asked to make sure everybody gets fed fairly. And he ends up getting scattered because of persecution. And you see him go to Samaria and see the same miracles and see the same uh, demons having to obey what he says and seeing people getting born again all over the place, just like they saw in Jerusalem. And you realize that God is doing something throughout the church, that he hasn't stopped. He hasn't stopped being the same God, the same spirit that dwelled in them, lived in us. And we can get excited by what we read because we're not just reading history. We're reading the living word of God. We're reading the acts, not of people, but the acts of the spirit. And uh, as we've said before, uh, Luke wrote the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and also the book of Acts. And in both of those letters, he writes it, he addresses it. Um, In the book of Acts, he, he addresses it to a guy named Theophilus, whether or not that was a real person or a pseudonym or, or a name attached to a group of people because it did mean friend of God. Um, you can argue and debate about that. But one thing we know is that he said, I'm writing you to tell you, uh, in my first account, he said, I told you about all that Jesus began to do in his years of ministry. And so, as you know, if you've read the Bible, read the Gospels, the book of Luke starts with the birth of Christ, well, even before the birth of Christ, starts right before the birth of Christ, starts with the prophecy about John the Baptist, and then it it ends uh, after the resurrection of Jesus and Jesus' ascension to, to heaven. And so, it's interesting that the book of Luke captures all of Jesus' life on the earth, and yet he says, that account was to tell you what Jesus began. All that Jesus did on the earth 
through the three years of ministry that he ministered on the earth, through his death, resurrection, this was all the beginning of something. And he uses that as his lead into the book of Acts. This is the continuation of what Jesus did and what Jesus is continuing to do. And so as we jump in to Acts chapter 3, We've just read about the day of Pentecost and all that took place on the day of Pentecost, which is an awesome thing. Um, as, as we've talked about, Jerusalem was the last place you'd want for Jesus to tell you to stay. Jerusalem was the city that crucified Jesus. Jerusalem was the city that the disciples were too afraid to go while Jesus was still alive. Jerusalem was the city that hated them, that wanted them dead. And that's where God chooses to, to, to have the first harvest of 3,000 souls coming into the kingdom, being born again, receiving Jesus, was in Jerusalem. The church begins in the very city where they were least welcome. And you see something happening. You see something begin to happen. There is, there's an explosion of growth, um, both externally and internally. Things are changing in them. It says they're in a state of awe. They don't know what's going on, but they know it's God, so they're excited. They're sharing with one another. They're, they're always together. They're, they're going to the temple, and they're also devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're going to each other's houses. There's something happening. So far in the book of Acts, we've not yet encountered a great deal of opposition. So far, all we've, all we've heard so far is that there were a few people mocking them when they were speaking in other tongues, saying these guys are drunk. That was the worst we see so far. It's about to get a little worse. It's about to get a little tougher for them. You notice something. It says in Acts 2 that they were daily going to the temple. Now, you have to understand that there's one main, was one main temple in the whole country. That's the temple in Jerusalem. These guys didn't grow up going to the temple every day. These guys grew up in Galilee. They may make a, a pilgrimage once or twice a year, but they didn't go every day. This was a special thing. But they're going to the temple regularly while they're here in Jerusalem. Why were they going to the temple regularly? We read later on, by the time you read the book of Hebrews, you don't get the, you don't get the vibe that a bunch of people are going to the temple regularly. This is something that happened in the beginnings of the church. Because the temple was not a Christian temple. It was... A Jewish temple. It was the Jewish temple, right? It was the rebuilt temple of Solomon. It was the, the temple that Herod built, uh, trying to replicate the temple of Solomon. Very different in some ways, but this was the temple that Jesus said would one day be torn down. This is where the Jesus uh, really got himself into some trouble. This is where Jesus turned over tables and all of that. Why are they going to the temple, do you figure? I'm sure they're going to worship God, absolutely. But they're also going... Uh, because this is where they're finding their brethren. This is why they're, where they're finding the other Jewish people that they're sharing the gospel with. So far, there hasn't been a definite break between the Christians and the Jews. So far, they're still identifying as Jewish people who have found the Messiah. So when they go to the temple, they're telling people, we found the Messiah. Now, I think if you're going to the temple and telling people you found the Messiah when the whole system has become built on the Messiah not being here yet, you might find a little bit of trouble, right? Who, who resisted Jesus the whole time? It was the religious folks, right? It was the religious folks, the, the people whose home base is the temple. So you find these are the guys, this, the temple guard, it wasn't the Romans that came and got Jesus. 
It was the temple guard. It was the temple guard that illegally arrested Jesus at night, dragged him away to a courtyard, and had a secret trial in the middle of the night at the high priest's house. Super illegal. They really weren't going for legal here. And it was after that that they got the Romans involved. And it was after that they pressured Pontius Pilate to go, go ahead and execute Jesus. And he didn't want to do it, but he was so afraid of these people who seemed like they were willing to die just to make sure he died. So would you really want to be going to the temple every day if you were them? Would you really be wanting to put yourself out there? Now, I'm sure they're going and they can identify, but you understand that throughout the book of Acts, we see something that we didn't see when the disciples were walking with Jesus. We see them all of a the sudden, they're identifying with the prophecies. You see, when Jesus was walking with them, there were things he said and referenced prophecies that they didn't understand what they meant. They didn't get it. They didn't know he was talking about him. And so when he died, they weren't expecting the resurrection, no matter how many times he told them it would happen. When he, when he went through all these things, they didn't recognize at the time he was fulfilling prophecy. But once he is resurrected and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, even before they're filled with the Holy Spirit, when he breathes his spirit into them, all of a sudden they begin to make some connections here. We read it in, in, in Acts chapter 1 where they all of a sudden realized that the scripture already said that Judas was going to betray Jesus. And they go, hey, the prophets told us about this a long time ago. And they look at it and they say, well, it says here, one will betray him and it says, let another man take his place. So they said, okay, I guess we should elect another to to make the 11 back into 12 again. So they see themselves into the prophecy and they actually are acting on it. Then when Peter gets up and he preaches and he's, I mean, things are going on. I mean, they're speaking in other tongues. They're acting a little weird and they go, don't worry guys, this is what the prophet Joel talked about when he said God was gonna pour his spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters would prophesy. Your young men would dream dreams. Your old men would see visions. That's this, this is now. You see, all of the sudden, They're recognizing that they're living in these prophecies. You can imagine when they go to the temple and the scroll is opened up. Do you remember when Jesus went to the synagogue and the scroll was opened up and he found in Isaiah where it says where it was written of him? He found himself in the scripture. Well, all of a sudden, they're finding themselves in the scripture. And so can you imagine going to the temple and the guy opens the scroll and all of a sudden, the stuff they've heard since they were little kids means something. I mean, it always meant something, but it's really meaning something now. Start talking about the Messiah like we always talk about the Messiah. And they're saying, he's here. This happened. Now, do you think they went and were just so well behaved and sat quietly in the back and just said, someday we'll tell everybody what we're thinking. No, I imagine these guys ruffled some feathers. But the big confrontation hasn't happened yet. There hasn't been an event that's really ticked everybody off yet. I would have thought 3,000 people, plus a lot more after that, being born again because of Peter's really, really (laughs) bold sermon. I would have thought that that would have ruffled some feathers. But so far, there's been nobody thrown in prison. There's been nobody really beat up yet until Acts chapter 3. Because Acts chapter 3, something happens. Peter and John are on their way to the temple, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 
I, I, to me, these guys are like my favorite celebrities. It's kind of cool <laughs> thinking of Peter and John just, you know, because we know them. We, we kind of follow their lives all the way to their to almost their deaths, and we know how they died through church history. And so, you know, you, a lot of the letters we read from Peter and the letters we read from John were written as old men. But I like to think of them now, they've just, they're young at this point. They're two young guys that have just seen Jesus go up into the clouds, watched his feet disappear, and then <laughs> gathered in a room and are filled with the Holy Spirit and preach one of the most powerful messages anybody's ever heard uh, besides what they heard from Jesus. And Peter and John, the, the two future Hall of Famers, are just two young guys going to the temple together. And as they're walking to the temple, let's start, let's read what it says. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Ninth hour, the Jewish uh, day began at 6 a.m., and so the ninth hour is 3 p.m. That's the hour of prayer. So they're going to pray. They're not necessarily going to proselytize. That may happen, but their main purpose here is to go to pray. As they're going, it says in verse 2, a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. Now, it's not that different from the way it is now that there might be this beautiful gate leading into a temple where people are going to worship the amazing God. But at the base of this beautiful piece of architecture that's symbolizing a, an awesome and great God, there's a man who hasn't been able to walk for all his life. I mean, he can't get a job. The best he can do is ask people for money. It's interesting when you go to cities throughout Canada and you, you, you notice that the richest areas and the poorest areas are separated by less than a block sometimes. It's been such an amazing thing to see some of the most beautiful monuments and see some of the most just desperate poverty right at the base of it. And here you see a man who's forced to rely on the kindness of others I think he, he's probably figured out a couple of things. Number one, everybody goes to the temple at certain times. All right, I figured it out. There'll always be a crowd at the temple. Number two, it's hard to turn a poor guy down when you're, you're going in to pray. It's a little harder there, isn't it? <laughs> he's figured something out. And uh, he says to Peter and John, will you, receive, will you give me something? Will you give me some charity? Verse four, but Peter, along with John, Sorry, I skipped ahead. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention. So you see, this guy's not particularly focused on Peter and John. He's, he's using the shotgun approach. I'm going to ask everybody that's coming in. So he's saying, hey, can you give me some money? Hey, can you spare some money? Hey, can you spare some money? Peter and John understand that this is, this is not going to be a normal encounter with this guy. And they say, look at us. So this guy goes, he gives him his attention. I think he thinks, well, they got some money. I mean, these guys, you know, because you know how it is. Now, we're in Lloydminster. We don't encounter this a lot. But if you've been in big cities, you watch how the locals act around homeless people. They don't make eye contact unless they have money to give. They don't have anything to give. They make sure that they, act, they just act like, ah, what are those voices? I, don't, I hear something. I, you know, and they just keep walking. And so... 
there's all these people that are ignoring this guy, I'm sure, and maybe some that have thrown him something. And all of a sudden, these two guys go, look at us. Well, if they're asking for your attention, they're either going to tell you to get a job or they're going to give you a lot of money. And knowing that this guy's lame and it's not 2014, there's a good chance they know he can't get a job. So this guy, he's going to get some money from this. In verse 6, he began giving the attention because he thinks he's going to receive something from them. In verse 6, Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. That's it. It's amazing, our prayers that we pray for sick people now. Seems like we're stalling for time. God, you know this person. Oh, Lord. You know them. You see them. You've known them since they were... Oh, before they're in the mother's womb, I guess. And Oh, you know what they're going through. Oh, Lord, that you would see. Them. You know, half an hour later, we say amen. Do you notice that Jesus used like maximum five, seven words when he's healing people? Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. The other thing is this. He says, there's what I don't have. I don't have a bunch of cash on me. What I do have, I'm going to give to you. Now, that's a dramatic, that is a big statement. He doesn't say what God has. He says what I have. Now, he's about to say later on, it's not me that healed the guy. It's Jesus that healed the guy. But he, he considers the authority of the name of Jesus so big and the instructions that Jesus gave them so irrevocable that he says, I have something to give to you. You remember when Jesus sent disciples all to different villages, he told them to heal the sick. He told them to cleanse the lepers. He told them to cast out evil spirits. He said, freely you've received. Now freely give. Peter understands, I have something. I don't have to beg God for this because he already told me to do this. I'm not begging him or giving him multiple choice and hoping he chooses one. I know he already sent me to do this. So in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. Verse 7, and seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and he began to walk. And he entered the temple with, the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate at the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him because they knew this is not a con because if it is, it's the longest con I've ever seen. This guy's been here for years. He's been lame since his mother's womb. And something's happened to him. I find it just, well, let's keep reading and we'll go back and talk about some stuff. While he was clinging to Peter and John, now he's not clinging, them, clinging to them as a crutch. He doesn't need them to walk. He's walking on his own. He's leaping on his own. He's staying with them because he's so excited. These are the guys that, that told him to walk. He's walking now. He's not going to leave these guys. He's clinging to them. All the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. Now, the portico of Solomon is still part of the temple grounds here. So there's going to be some trouble here because there's a ruckus that's been stirred up and all the people are suddenly drawn to this. 
says, they all gather and they all see, they all run to them, full of amazement. But in verse 12, but when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us? As if by our own power or piety, we had made him walk. What a great statement. Why are you looking at me as if I made this guy walk? Now, it's, it's funny how he treats them like the dummies. They don't know. I just saw a guy get up. You're the one that told him to get up. He acts like you should have known better, guys. Why do you look at me? As if I'm the guy that healed him. Now, I want you to see what he says. As if by our own power or our own piety we made him walk. In other words, he didn't walk because we had the power to make him walk. And he didn't walk because we were somehow better people. Somehow holier than everybody else. This kind of applies to us in a little ways because we like to separate Peter and John as supermen, super apostles, and we think, well, none of this could ever happen here. But they just said it did not happen because of who we are. He's about to tell you why it happened. He says, he's going to tell you in the long, the long route because it is Peter. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. He's going to start back at Abraham. Oh, Lord, help us. <laughs> has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis, listen to this. Now we'll talk more about his sermon next week. But I want you to see what he says. On the basis, here's why the guy got healed. On the basis of faith in his name. It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and you know. And the faith which comes through him, Jesus, has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. How much faith could this lame guy possibly have had? I mean, the, all, that the, all that he's got to process is Peter saying, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walked. I don't know how much this guy knows about Jesus, but that's all he's got to go on. And that's enough. Peter and John had faith in the name of Jesus. They had to, because you watch what they had to do. Now, two things are motivating them to do this. Number one, the la one of the last things Jesus told them was, these signs will follow them that believe. They'll lay hands on the sick, and they will see them recover. And he, he said more than that. You read in Mark 16, there's a whole list of things he says. So, number one, the command of Jesus. He says, in my name, I skipped that part, and it's an important part, in my name, they will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. The second thing that's driving them is the fact that they are now filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, the Bible says that nobody could even guess the will of God. It says in 1 Corinthians 2, no eye has seen, nobody's, no ear has heard, no, nor has entered in the heart of men the things that God has prepared for us. For who knows the heart of a man but the spirit of a man? Even so, nobody knows the heart of God except the spirit of God. And then it says in the next verse, now we have received not the spirit which is of the world, but the spirit of God so that we might know the things freely given to us by God. It says God has revealed these things by his spirit. So here's the deal. It says that the spirit searches even the depths of God. 
The Spirit knows what we don't know. The Spirit knows the will of God. And Romans 8 says when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit prays through us the perfect will of God in groanings too deep for words. So the Holy Spirit knows the depths of the will of God. They've now been filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's something in them where they know. They see things they didn't see before. They're led places they weren't led before. They know what to say when they didn't know what to say before. Don't think for a minute Peter had a clue what to say that day of Pentecost. But the Holy Spirit gave him the words and he said what God told him to say. Now you notice in 1 Corinthians 2, it doesn't say, but the 12 received the Spirit. He's writing to a group of normal folks and he says, we've received the Spirit of God so that we might know the things freely given us by God. I believe being filled with the Holy Spirit of God is not just about information. Certainly it's about empowerment. But I imagine being filled with the Holy Spirit of God would also lead you to be motivated by the same things that motivate Jesus. I would imagine it would fill you with the same compassion that Jesus had. We talked about a few weeks ago how every time, how so many times when Jesus healed someone, it says first he had compassion on them. That motivation of compassion, that motivation of love, being filled with the Spirit of God is not just like getting a power up and all of a sudden you've got strength you didn't have before. Being filled with the Spirit of God means it pushes a lot of you out and you're filled with a lot of who he is. A lot of your opinions go. A lot of your ideas go. A lot of your goals, a lot of your ambitions go, and you're suddenly filled with him. It's the picture we get all throughout the New Testament, not just in the apostles, but in the rest of the church, is that they're putting aside their own stuff. It says, I mean, every time they get filled with the Spirit, there are two big moments where the whole group is filled with the Spirit, in Acts 2 and Acts 4. And after both of those events, they start saying, nothing I have is my own. And they start sharing it. And they start, they start saying, hey, hey, we're all in this together. Because all of a sudden, the more full they are of Him, the less any of their own ideas matter, the less their own stuff matters, they just care about Him. Now, as Peter and John are walking, you can imagine where they used to see a guy there and go, I wish I could help him. Not only now do they know they have something for him, but they have the compassion to want to see this guy walk, to not pass him by. Don't think they're doing this just to show off. They care about this guy. It's going to be a sign and a wonder to many. Yes, that's not their only motivation. You think about the guts it took the confidence it took. I've said this before, so bear with me if you've heard me say this before about this particular miracle because I know some of you weren't here last time we talked about it. But I know many of you have felt the tug on the inside to pray for somebody at certain times, to go and tell somebody about Jesus, to go and pray for a sick person, to go and uh, be the hands and feet of Jesus wherever you are but we're very, very embarrassed and we're very worried that something might not happen. So it's our temptation. Number one, like I said, to pray long prayers. Jesus said, now there's a time and a place for long prayers. I believe that. But Jesus said, don't be like the Jews, like the religious leaders, Pharisees, sorry. Don't be like the Pharisees who think because they prayed a fancy prayer it gets heard. And don't be like the Gentiles who thinks they prayed a long prayer that it gets heard. It didn't, get, it didn't get heard because you prayed a little extra words, right? God hears it, 
A simple three-word prayer is often as powerful as a, as a hundred-word prayer. It's depending on what the heart is behind it. So it's one of our things is we want to pray, and we just kind of want to preach a little message while we're praying. And then another time, you know, if we saw this lame guy, what, realistically, what would we do? I mean, I think realistically, a lot of us would do the stealth prayer. Now, maybe you haven't done this, but I've done this. You knew you were supposed to pray for somebody. But this is an airport. I've got a flight to catch, and there's a lot of people, even though I'll never see them again, that I don't want them to think I'm weird because we might be on the plane together. So you pray for them from a distance. But that doesn't feel right. Something still feels wrong. So I'm supposed to go up to them and pray. So it's an airport. It's busy. There's a pretzel place right here. Okay, let's just act like I'm standing in line. Let me just kind of brush up against them. Jesus. Jesus. Lord, just um, put your hand on your head. This is what you do when you're praying for your food. You don't want people to know you're praying for your food. You got it's the headache. Look. Oh, Jesus. Lord, I'm sorry. Just, uh, thank you, Lord. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> just, just finding a place. Jesus, could you hear Something interesting about Jesus' actions when he healed people is he always healed people with a word. He never just, I mean, he often would lay his hands on them. One time he gave a guy a wet willy and healed his ears. Another time he spit in the mud and put mud in his eye. So it was an intense experience that a lot of us would be like, no, I'm not doing that. But uh, what you do see is Jesus almost always would, would command somebody to do something as they were being healed. Okay, for an example, take up your bed and walk. Rise and be healed. You know, go wash at the pool of Siloam. You know, often he gave them something to do to demonstrate they were healed. As they did it, they were healed. That woman with the issue of blood, as she went to Jesus, she crawled, she touched the hem of his garment. She got healed, even though thousands of people had been touching him that day. But she got healed because she acted on her faith. So often Jesus, when he was healing people, would command them to do something so that in the doing of what they couldn't do before, all of a sudden they would be healed. Now it was his power, but often he'd say to them, your faith has made you well. Now faith without him is nothing, right? It's just empty belief. But faith is the thing that, that grasped on to the, the free given power of God. Jesus said, power left me when the woman touched him. And he said, who touched me? I felt power go out from me. And she, she sheeply said, I, I touched you, sir. And he said, your faith has made you well. Now, it was his power that did the heavy lifting. But it was her faith that grabbed onto it. And so you see Peter and John do the same thing. They say, get up. Now, here's the thing. That's tough to do because we can say, I'll pray for you and maybe someday that you'll just start to feel a little bit better. That happens sometimes. You know, Mark Davy, who's coming to visit us, we, I've told you the story before about, don't you love the story about the blind guy and the lame guy? Does anybody not know that story? You want to hear it? And this just happened a couple years ago. Mark Davy, just a good old Canadian guy who God called to preach in the Sudan. He's preaching and, uh, He's prayed for a bunch of people, and two of them were these two. I mean, people had come from all these little villages to hear somebody preach. They didn't know who Jesus was, but there was a crowd, and they knew to come to where a crowd was. 
And they gathered, they heard the word, they were prayed for, but they were all kind of having to camp out because they were a lot of miles from their home. Somehow a blind guy and a lame guy found their way there. And they're kind of sleeping in the same field area. And, and the blind guy and the lame guy, it sounds like a sitcom that these two are hanging out. <laughs> the blind guy and the lame guy are hanging out and, uh, and they, they believe that God's done something. They felt something different. They just don't know what's different yet. They just know something's different. They go back and they're, they're going to sleep and all of a sudden the, the, uh, the lame guy starts to drag himself. He didn't have the sophisticated equipment we have. He starts to drag himself to go to the bathroom. He finds that his legs all of a sudden seem to be working. He gets up and he walks. Well, instead of going to the bathroom, he runs back to his friend. I don't know if they had a porta potty or what, but anyways, he, I don't think he made it. He comes back to his friend. He goes, look, I can walk. Well, he just said that to a blind guy. <laughs> look. But in that look, when he said look, the, the blind guy could see all of a sudden. Sees the man. And they went back the next day and told them what the Lord had done, and they had witnesses that came with them that could testify, this is true, we've been with these guys. So that was an example of something that didn't happen right away. Uh, one time we were in the Philippines in Mindanao, and uh, uh, my dad had prayed for a paralyzed man. He was preaching, and as he was preaching, there were uh, a group of people that, that took one of the plastic chairs because they had gone up and preached in the mountains where you didn't normally go to this part. And so they went up to preach in the mountains, and our Christian friends from the other villages had brought plastic chairs so people could sit in them. Well, all of a sudden, as he's preaching, he sees somebody steal a plastic chair. And he, he, he has to think, am I going to stop preaching and tell him, hey, they're stealing a chair? Or just say, well, that's a chair for the kingdom of God. Let's just let it go. So he lets it go. But they come back with a man in the chair. This man has been paralyzed. He fell from a coconut tree and, and snapped his, his, uh, part of his vertebrae in, in his spinal column and no longer had anything from the neck down. In fact, dad said as he was praying for him, um, I don't want to be crude here, but the fellow lost control of his bladder while he was being prayed for. And this guy, as he's prayed for, he feels needles in his legs that he hasn't felt before. But he still can't walk. So they go back home. And one week later, we get a phone call from our friend that pastors there. He says, you'll never believe what happened. This man is walking around the village, jumping around the village, running around the village. And he says, those that were resisting Jesus up to this point have now, many of them have now come and been born again because of what they saw in this man. So there are a few examples right there of people that didn't get healed right at that moment. But a lot of times we'll just use that as our crutch. Oh, maybe you probably won't feel anything now. Just, you know, maybe you feel a little bit better in the morning. And, and, you know, Peter has the kind of guts that we need. Peter is convinced. What's he convinced of? He's convinced of the name of Jesus. He's convinced of the command that Jesus gave. We can't presume to use the name of Jesus where the will of God is unknown. Or else you're not acting in the name of Jesus, right? The name of Jesus is not an abracadabra that you can put on whatever you want. It's not just a word, it's living and acting in his name as his representatives. The reason they could say this in the name of Jesus is because Jesus said, these signs will follow them that have believed. So they know that they've been commanded to do it, they can freely use the name of Jesus. 
And here's the interesting thing. Throughout the rest of the book of Acts, there are many times where they pray for somebody, they tell somebody to be healed, and they don't say in the name of Jesus, and the person's healed, but it's still in the name of Jesus. Do you know what I'm saying? They didn't say in the name of Jesus, but it was still just as much in the name of Jesus. So you don't get to say, Lord, I want a unicorn for my birthday. In the name of Jesus, amen. And a unicorn shows up. You don't even get to say, Lord, uh, you know, I, like we've said before, no matter how many times you watched Angels in the Outfield, you don't get to pray that the Angels win the World Series or the pennant and stand in the crowd and flap your arms and say, in the name of Jesus. And Jesus is like a genie that just has to do what you said. We're his representatives. We're his ambassadors. Now, you need to know the word of God. Because in the word of God, there are precious promises that you can know are true. You also have the spirit of God. So there are times where the word is unclear about something and you need to know the will of God. Well, how do I know the will of God? 1 Corinthians 2, Romans 8. You need to know by the spirit of God. You need to pray it through. He'll confirm it, probably through one or more witnesses. There will be a sense. He'll confirm it in his word. You'll know it's his will and you can act on his will knowing you're acting in the name of Jesus. 1 John says, we know this, that if we pray anything, according, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we have whatever we've asked for. So Peter and John are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that this man needs to get up and walk. They're convinced, number one, because Jesus told them. They're convinced, number two, because they saw Jesus do it. And as he did, he said, you do what I do and greater works will you do. Number three, they know because the Holy Spirit's in them and he's confirming it. So they do something that we're too chicken to do half the time. First of all, not a long Pharisee prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And the second thing Peter does is the most nutball thing that you can possibly do to a lame guy. If he doesn't walk, walk away, put some distance and just say, must be his fault. Peter doesn't do this. Peter grabs him, a lame guy. Says he yanks him to his feet. Peter grabs him and pulls him to his feet. This is not a good PR stunt. The, the people don't know you that well. If you yank a lame guy up violently, how do I know it was with force? Well, it says that his strength filled him. The guy leapt to his feet. So maybe Peter helped him gently. It says, it says Peter grasped him. So I, I get the sense that there was a, a force with that. And plus, it's kind of Peter style anyways. <laughs> Peter grabs him and yanks the guy to his feet. Now, if the guy doesn't walk... You are just the biggest jerk around the temple. Because you just yanked Floppy Joe here, and you yanked him, and he falls, and, and, and it looks, I mean, you just ruined his life. You should embarrass him in front of everybody, probably hurt him, probably energy. If it were in today, you might get sued. Peter grabs him, yanks him to his feet, and as he gets yanked to his feet, strength fills his legs, and he leaps up. And it says he begins to praise God and walk and leap and praise God. This is amazing. Now, would we have the guts to not only say to somebody, walk, but number two, to yank them up? How much confidence do we have in what the Lord has commanded us to do? This goes beyond, certainly goes beyond merely praying for the sick. 
I could see this in almost every area. We are constantly filled with backup plans. Contingency plans in case God doesn't do what he said he'd do. Little outs and coping doctrines. I think many of the doctrines of the church were developed to cope for the fact that God had left the room and we don't want anyone to notice. We develop a doctrine to explain why it didn't work this time. Peter and John are so confident in the name of Jesus. Even our English word confidence means with faith, with trust. Their confidence was in his name. That they were acting in his name and that in the power of his name, this guy could get up. So that confidence led him to do something really stupid. Led him to, in front of a bunch of people, put themselves out there. Of course, this is the same Peter that said, Lord, if that's you, call me and I'll walk out on the water. So he's got a little guts behind him. It's the same attitude when they say, I have something. What arrogance might, we might say, what arrogance? You don't have anything. Peter considered, if God commanded us to do this, if Jesus commanded us to do this, we have this. I have something this man needs. Do you consider that in you, the jar of clay, that earthen vessel, that God has placed something that you have to give to someone else? That you have something? When's the last time you saw someone in need and you realized you had something? Did God tell us to give money to the poor? Yeah, he did. But you watch, Jesus didn't just put a band-aid on the problem half the time. He went to the root of the issue. You see Jesus not just uh, buying somebody a crutch, but healing their legs. Not just walking somebody around, but healing their eyes. I think that we need to have a greater expectation of God. Thank God for the band-aids, but also thank God for the cure. I think we need to have a great expectation of God. I think seriously, we would much rather raise the silver and gold We'd much rather raise the funds of the silver and gold than have to tell somebody, rise and be healed. It's easier to raise money than it is to see a miracle take place. Now, I'm not against raising money for somebody. I'm not against charity. I believe in it. But I'm also telling us we need to step out when we know the will of God. Now, there's not, there are times you don't know the will of God, but when you know what his word says, you're convinced that his, his word is true, you're convinced that you're acting in line with that word. You know that. You need to step out on it. Now, I know that not everybody got healed in Jesus' ministry. Only those that believed did. When he went to his own hometown, their unbelief stopped him from getting healed. There are going to be people that hear the message. And you know, Paul is preaching at Lystra in Acts 14. He's preaching at Lystra. And there's one guy that he recognizes has faith to be made healed. He stops because of that guy. Out of a crowd of how many people, one guy has faith. Now, that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. See, they recognized something. They recognized that man. They re- Paul recognized the man at Lystra and said, that guy has faith to be made healed. Let me tell him. And, and he stops his sermon. And he says, in Jesus' name, get up. Actually, he doesn't even say in Jesus' name. He just says, rise and be healed. And the man is healed. There's a... A story where the 
Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas went to the Pope at the time and the Pope was showing him all the silver and gold that they had and he said, no longer can it be said, silver and gold have I none. Thomas Aquinas said to him, no longer can it be said, rise and be healed. They realized they'd begun to and this happens throughout every church, throughout every organization, throughout every uh, great move of God. If we don't look out for ourselves, what happens is we let the, the gears keep going and we let programs and we let safety mechanisms take over and we put our trust in the efforts of human uh, ability and human organization to take over for what God once did. And in every... Every great denomination or move of God often began with a great revival. And then through time, if it didn't get revived again, it just became a bunch of people doing stuff religiously without God. My mother was part of a church when she grew up in Texas. She was part of a church. I won't say the denomination because there's many good people in this denomination that are following Jesus wholeheartedly. But her church was a church that said, if you're born into this church, if your parents go to this church, you're automatically going to heaven. Like for the rest of your life. You just, you, you had the good fortune of being born here. So you're good. There was no faith in Jesus. There was just religion. That organization began. It started with one of the greatest revivals that swept England and North America. That was the beginning of that denomination. But by the time she was a teenager, her youth group was doing seances as an activity. It's pretty bad, huh? And that denomination began with revival. Let's not let ourselves be so afraid of stepping out in faith and trusting a living, moving, active God that we rely on what we can do instead of what God can do. I'm not against human effort, but unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. Those of you that were with us on Sunday, my mom's just came back from Tanzania. There, she's uh, staying the night in Philadelphia tonight, and she'll be home tomorrow. And I told some of you on Sunday, they had such dramatic things happening in some of those meetings with the, in Africa in, in Kilimanjaro. Uh, and one of the things uh, was, you know, a lady, one of the last things she said on Sunday morning was there was a lady there that had a tumor that was um, bulging out from her stomach, causing great pain and eventually would cause her own death. This tumor bulging out as they prayed went away disappeared in front of them and they felt it go away and not only did they feel the physical tumor leave but she felt a dramatic increase all of a sudden the pain was gone and she felt life that she hadn't had before so there was both a seen miracle and a, and a felt miracle and a demonstrated miracle and uh, sometimes we ask ourselves well, why does God do such great things in Africa why does God do such great things in the Philippines why not here well first of all he does do these things here we see them. Second of all, one of the biggest problems we have is that we have developed so many coping mechanisms 
If it doesn't work, that's okay. We got it. We'll be fine. If God doesn't come through this time, we'll be okay. The other thing is we were raised with commercials and skepticism. Because those commercials did something to us. We knew that Energizer could not be the best and Duracell be the best at the same time. <laughs> we knew that Tide couldn't be the best at the same time that whatever the uh, cheer was the best. We knew that somebody was lying to us. We've been lied to all our lives. So we developed this thick skin of skepticism. Then there are the flakes. Oh, they're the flakes. The charlatans, those that would use the same things we're talking about tonight for their own gain, put on a show, some sort of David Copperfield junk, and, and eventually are exposed as frauds. And we go, I don't want to be identified with them. So we step back. But friends, just because someone's using a counterfeit money doesn't mean you stop using the real thing. In fact, if you want to identify the counterfeit, the best way to identify the counterfeit is to get to know the real. When you get to know the real and you feel that $100 bill and you smell it and you know how it feels, the moment a counterfeit 100 is put in your hands, you may not even know what's wrong with it, but you'll know something's wrong with it. And when you know the real power of God, when you understand the word of God and you make that your foundation and you know the spirit of God and you know his voice, a stranger's voice, you won't follow because it doesn't say because you went to all the Christian bookstores and you bought all the books about strangers' voices. No, it says because you know his voice and a stranger's voice you don't know. The reason, he says, you'll know not to follow the fakes is because you know me so well, you know my voice. That's not my voice. And so you've seen the fakes. You know the fakes. And immediately you saw it and you said, something's not right here. You might not have known what, but you knew something wasn't right. Don't let the fakes steal the real. Wouldn't that be what the enemy wants? If I sow enough counterfeits, they'll be too afraid to be identified with the counterfeits, to ever see the real in their midst. Peter says in the last days, people will mock. Jude says in the last days, people, people will mock as well. But Peter says, one of the things they'll say is where the promises, where's the promise of his coming? For since our fathers were put in the ground, we've been saying he's coming and he's not here. And Peter says, friends, don't be fooled. Don't count his patience as slowness. And Peter tells the church to live a godly life and be expectant for God. Be expectant for Jesus to come back any moment. But he told us in the last days there'd be those that get tired and weary. Why? Because people were telling him he'll come on this day. So what happens in 2000, 2010, 2011, 1988? What happens in our generation? We have somebody every 10 years that knows exactly the day that Jesus is coming back. And because they know the day and the exact hour that he's coming back, they tell all their followers to be ready to, to get rid of all their stuff and, and be in a public place or on top of a mountain or something. And when that doesn't happen, they are ruined. And so what do we have? We have a generation of people that go, I don't know, maybe Jesus isn't even, I don't even think about that stuff anymore. Why? We're so burnt out on the counterfeit that we forget to be what Jesus told us to be, what the New Testament says in almost every book. Be expectant that he's coming back. Look forward to his return. Be anxious for his arrival. So don't let the counterfeits 
say, because they said on May 21st, Jesus is coming back, and he didn't come back. Don't let that throw you off the fact that he is coming again. Don't let the fact that some goofball got up and did this weird little thing where he offered to sell you, oh, you know, a nice cloth dipped in special water. Don't let that fool you from the fact that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he said there'll be false prophets. He said there'll be lying sons and wonders. He said there'll be false teachers that arise. But don't be thrown off. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. And the fakes won't get you down. We need the boldness, the confidence in the name of Jesus. You need to be confident that he's given you his name, that you are in his name. You need to be confident that you are his body. You need to be confident that there are different gifts in the church and you need to walk in the grace that he's given you. And when you step out and you know it's God's will because his word has confirmed it, because his spirit has confirmed it, do it with all your heart. Maybe just step out without all the backup plans. Backup plans ruin us. If Peter had held onto the boat, he never would have walked on the water. In fact, it's when he saw the wind and the waves and started formulating, what am I going to do, that he began to sink. Do you notice that Peter's not concerned that Jesus will fall in the water? He, like us, have become confident that Jesus can handle himself. What we're not so confident in is can Jesus work through me? Peter's not worried about Jesus sinking. He's worried about himself sinking. I think most of the time, we're not worried that God can't do something. We're worried that he couldn't do it through us. But I want you to remember what Peter said. It's not by our own piety this man was healed. It's not by our own power this man was healed. It's by the name of Jesus. Let's have great faith in that name. Amen. Stand with me. See how easy it was? I said stand, and most of you did. (laughs) Okay, maybe that wasn't a big miracle. Thank God. I have a great desire for Canada to know the power of a real God, to know the power of the cross, to know the power of the resurrection, to know the power of the name of Jesus, to know what happens when someone comes from death and sin to life in God. I want our church, and when I say our church, I don't mean the group of people that gather in this building. I mean the church, the believers in Lloydminster. I want them to have, be bound together with a sense of unity and extreme confidence in what God can do. And I believe that if we prepare our own hearts and seek his kingdom and seek his righteousness, that we'll see things we couldn't even have imagined. But it's going to take us stepping out into areas we feel uncomfortable, into areas we could get in trouble, into areas we feel like we're not capable. And you must remember, no matter what you do for the Lord, it is not by my own piety nor nor by my power that this is getting done, but by faith in the name of Jesus. You have to have faith in his name. That's how we got saved. That's how every good thing that comes out of your life will come. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are 
humbled by the fact that you would ever use us. But we are aware of the fact that you desire to use us. Lord, I, I, we're, none of us here would call ourselves super Christians. None of us here would see ourselves as more extraordinary than the person next to us. But we understand it's not by our power nor by our might, but it's by your spirit that every good thing that's going to come out of our lives is coming from you. It's your name which is above every name. It's your power. It's your spirit which has filled us. Give us the courage and the faith to step out into uncomfortable situations and put our trust, put our, all of our weight on you. Knowing that you've never failed us. Knowing that your words never failed us. Lord, we desire to be like Peter and John and be able to say, not just I know someone who has something, but I have something. I have something to give to you. I have something to say to you. I have something to impart to you. I have something that you need. Let us realize that we've received freely. Now it's time to give freely. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys so much. Uh, be blessed. I want you to, if you don't know what's going on this week, take a minute and check out that screen back there. Um, I know Tuesday nights, they're having a great time at home groups. You want to be a part of that? You don't even need to sign up. You just need to show up. And uh, so there's information on the back screen about that. You can also uh, hijack Brent and Shereen there. They'll give you some information. We love you guys. Have a great week. God bless you.